I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Flissfather, an Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Communications at the University of Winnipeg, where he teaches courses on communication theory, popular culture, critical theories of discourse and ideology, and critical studies of social media. He also teaches cultural theory in the master's program in cultural studies and supervises directed readings and special studies courses on cultural and critical theory, media and communication theory, film and popular culture, social media, video games, and cyberpunk culture. His new book is Algorithmic Desire, toward a new structuralist theory of social media. Previous books include Postmodern Theory and Blade Runner, The Symbolic, The Sublime, and Slavoj Žižek's Theory of Film, and he's the co-editor of Žižek and Media Studies, a reader. He's a faculty researcher affiliated with the Center for Research and Cultural Studies at the University of Winnipeg and an editorial board member for the journals Rethinking Marxism and Topia, Canadian Journal of Cultural Studies. For more information, you can visit his website, matthewflissfader.com. That's M A T T. H-E-W-F-L-I-S-F-E-D-E-R dot com. And follow him at Twitter at Matt Flissfather. M-A-T-T-F-L-I-S-F-E-D-E-R. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film, at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Trapart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting 
Rendering Unconscious podcast, and all of my other creative endeavors. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your new book and how it came about? Okay, so the book is called Algorithmic Desire Toward a New Structuralist Theory of Social Media. Um, it really started to come about, um, well, I'll stay with the, the, the main argument of the book really is, is, is in a lot of critical social media studies, I think that we talk about all the flaws and the failures and the contradictions that we all experience when we're using social media platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, um, and so on. And I think that there's this tendency to talk about alternative platforms, alternative social media. So really the, the main idea of the book was to say, what if we actually take the idea, the concept of social media and ask, how is it that the concept of social media can be used as a, as a measurement against which we can understand all the flaws and contradictions of the platforms themselves. So I'm really trying to do a kind of an imminent critique of social media. Now, my background has been largely within Marxist and Lacanian um, theory, and my earlier work was focusing mostly on film studies, film analysis, trying to understand questions of ideology and subjectivity, specifically as it relates to cinema. And I was in this moment after I finished my doctoral work now 11 years ago, so 2010, um, I was thinking about how can I try to rethink the stuff that I was doing with film analysis for understanding media more broadly, but social media more specifically. So I started thinking about the way that social media tends to play around with our enjoyment, play around with our desire, play around with fantasy, the way that even the structure of social media seems to reposition or resemble, resemble what we might think of as the Lacanian big other, and how that all plays uh, a part in the contemporary form of uh, the capitalist and specifically neoliberal ideology and consciousness. So that's some of the stuff I try to get to in the book. And the, the book was several years in the making. And really, the individual chapters are just various responses I've had to different issues on social media, um, critique of capitalism, psychoanalysis um, over the years. I just want to add one um, point about the subtitle of the book um, um, toward a, a structuralist, a new structuralist theory of social media. And the idea of new structuralism sort of came about because specifically within uh, communication theory, I think that there is a tendency now to follow the very uh, vogue new materialist theories, assemblage thinking, the influences of Deleuze and Foucault on biopolitics, and drawing as I do from people like Slavoj Žižek, um, I was trying to think about how we might reconceptualize structuralism but away from the typical Levi-Straussian or Althusserian uh, frameworks of structuralism. So this is something that I try to do um, and revisit through the analysis of social media. Wonderful. And I love that you came to it through film. I hadn't realized that. And that makes a lot of sense. And I've also, I've been thinking a lot lately, you know, as a psychoanalyst, I feel like this is such a great moment for psychoanalysis because I feel like all these kinds of theories that we talk about all the time are like so evident in online platforms and social media and the way that we're using the internet. So I feel like it's a really good moment to 
to capitalize on that for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I mean, one thing I can say, because my my early writing on, on film and drawing on a lot of the, the British film theorists or the screen theorists, a lot of the psychoanalytic film theory from um, the, the French scene in the 1960s, one of the ways that I rethink what they were doing at the time was they were, it said that they were up, so Jean-Louis Baudry and Christian Metz and Laura Mulvey and all of those people, I mean, a lot of what people say they were doing was applying psychoanalysis to film. And I want to actually turn it around. And I actually think that the best thing of what they're doing is they're using film uh, and psychoanalysis as a way of understanding ideology and subjectivity. So I think that if we look at social media today and looking at it through the prism of psychoanalysis, I think that it actually teaches us not about social media, but it actually teaches us much more about the contemporary form that ideology and subjectivity have taken. Yeah, exactly. And will you talk a little bit about that? So just so you know, I finished my degree in 2007, my doctorate, but I have a very like clinical psychology background. So I didn't get any of this in school, like anything I've read about Lacan or Zizek or Marx or any of this, anything decolonial, postcolonial has all been after school. My training was very like, this is how you're a psychologist in the medical care system. Here are the medications people prescribe. Here's some CBT and behavior therapy, <laughs> like go and help people like be good cogs in the machine basically and I feel like I had to undo all of this training since then like through psychoanalytic training and then leaving that institute and like continually undoing kind of all this indoctrination it felt like so I really like to use these opportunities to get to learn a little bit from the experts and people like you that have been studying like Marx and Lacan and everything like through school and beyond yeah that's a really interesting point and I think I mean for me it was, uh, I came to psychoanalysis, Lacan, Freud, um, in, in an odd way, of, of course not through the, the clinical um, 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 setting, but really I was early on in my undergraduate, um, for various different reasons, I sort of latched on to Marxism and specifically the Marxist theory of ideology. So it was, and then of course, through uh, the work of the Frankfurt School, the work of Louis Althusser, I mean, it was through their influence that I really came to um, not only psychoanalysis, but even film. I think that my first interest in studying and interpreting. I mean, first of all, I've always been a, a fan of film and popular culture and media much more generally, but it was really in trying to address um, some of the difficulties in Marxist theories of ideology that I was really drawn towards a psychoanalytic framework. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I came from, I came at it more from a, a I guess, a, a political and a cultural and a, and a social angle, which led me down that road. Yeah, and I love that, but I feel like they're all coming together so nicely and in such an interesting way, like through the clinical work, through the theoretical work, and like looking at culture and politics in this moment. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. So what would you tell someone, I know it's a huge subject, but who was interested in just like kind of like a Marx Lacan 101 ideology? <laughs> what, what are some basic tenets? Um, so Marx Lacan 101, Oddly enough, and I, I'm increasingly, I wouldn't say that I, that I'm, that I am distant, I would distance myself from Althusser. I'm still very much 
enamored with the work of Louis Altersler, even though in much more of my, my recent studies, my recent scholarship and, uh, and my recent work, I've become somewhat critical um, of uh, his take uh, both on, on structuralism and, and, and humanism. But I actually think that Althusser's work for today is a very, very good jumping off or bouncing off point for people who are interested in the intersection between uh, Marx and Freud or, or Marxism and psychoanalysis. Um, not so much, I think that for many decades, the, the go-to was Frankfurt School of Scholarship, specifically the work of uh, Herbert Marcuse, in uh, Eros and Civilization in that book, where he's really trying to um, account for the failure of the Marxist theory to what, what Althusser would call to interpolate or to, to break through the supposed false consciousness produced by capitalism and liberalism. And for Marcuse, it's really the, the kind of libidinal attachments to forms of consumerism, uh, what he calls uh, repressive desublimation, which I think is, you know, that it's always been an interesting formulation, this idea of repressive desublimation that we're through consumer society told, you know, you can, you, there's no limits to what you can have. You can buy everything you want in the market, but the more we're allowed to buy in the market, the more we still feel that we're, we're being repressed from truth uh, or authentic enjoyment. So I think the formulation of repressive desublimation is an interesting one, but I think that it still in some ways speaks to a kind of uh, a false consciousness or a flaw in, in the subject. Whereas I think what Althusser does, and specifically, it's not, I don't think it's a paper that's read by students um, as much. And, and it's hard, I, I can understand why it's not read by students as much because it's difficult to find a good context for reading it. But Althusser's essay on Marx and Freud, I think is actually some of his very best writing. And what he tries to show there, rather than thinking about what psychoanalysis adds to Marxism, what he's showing is sort of the, the parallel um, projects of Marxism and psychoanalysis as it relates to the flaws in bourgeois culture and subjectivity. So Marx, for instance, is trying to argue against with the idea of uh, the historical class struggle, argue against the bourgeois conception of how societies build on the freedom of individual actors. Marx goes back and says, well, it's not just individuals acting on their own individual interests and freedoms, it's rather the, the, the shared class interests and the diametrically opposed or contradictory class um, interests of the owning class and the working class. So through that, Marx is really showing the flaw in the bourgeois understanding of society, culture, identity, freedom, and so on. And what Freud does is something similar, that Freud is actually showing through the discovery of the unconscious, the way in which, as the bourgeoisie proclaimed that we are all fully self-aware, uh, centered subjects, the Freudian conception of the unconscious really proves that in, uh, bourgeois consciousness is actually not a fully centered centered self-aware subject, but is really a decentered subject. So what Althusser really shows in that piece, I think is very usefully demonstrating the sort of the parallel operations between uh, Marx and Freud. And so that rather than having Freud add something to Marxism or Marxism adding something to Freud, I think that they're just two different ways of looking at the same basic problem, which is the historical uh, and, and cultural and political context of bourgeois consciousness. 
So I think, I mean, if I was, if I had my, my ideal, you know, dream course that I would teach, it would be one that would try to demonstrate the way that Marxism and psychoanalysis help us to understand some, uh, in different ways, not as additions to each other, but in parallel ways, I guess you could say intersecting ways, how they demonstrate the flaws um, and the problems of the bourgeois culture um, and bourgeois consciousness and ideology. I, I hope that that kind of answers. Absolutely. Um, and I'll try to find that paper online and see if I can link to it so people can look at it. It's actually in a text. Um, the, it was a translation and a collection of Althusser's various different writings on psychoanalysis. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so where do we go from here? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. So um, what are you working on now? So now I'm very, okay, so I'm very engaged in a project. Um, so just to add on to some of my work. So my new book is the book on social media, but this is my, uh, it's my third solo authored book. My first book was a book on Zizek and film theory. And then I did an edited collection with uh, my friend, Louis Paul Willis on Zizek and media studies. And then I did a book it was for a series with Bloomsbury called uh, Film Theory and Practice. I did a book on um, postmodern theory and Blade Runner. And my, so I've always been very fascinated by the Marxist critique of postmodernism, especially inspired by the work of Frederick Jameson and Slavoj Žižek. Um, and combined with the work that I did on the, on the postmodernism book, but also the social media book, I've kind of come back to this idea in Frederick Jameson's early postmodern work. He talks about this idea of the hysterical sublime. And he describes the hysterical sublime in contrast to the modern philosophical notion of the sublime um, in the work of Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant. Um, and I'll, I'll be reductive here for the sake of brevity, but we can understand the idea of the sublime as opposed to the beautiful in the work of early modern uh, philosophers on aesthetics, um, where they're trying to really talk about the sublime as this grasping of the, it's the, the, it's the kind of the, the awe, the fear, the fascination that we have with the irrationality of external nature that there's something about the irrationality of external nature that for, for Burke, in a way, we can, if we can experience it at a safe distance, then it provides a certain type of pleasure for us, what we would call in, in Lacanian sense, a form of jouissance, that if we experience it from a safe distance, then the sight of a tornado or, or some kind of natural disaster, I mean, look all around us today in, you know, in the, the climate crisis, and I can still smell the smoke from the forest fires, but mm. experiencing a safe uh, distance, there's that weird mix of pleasure and pain that creates a sort of a jouissance. Whereas for Kant, the difference is it's not so much just the irrationality of external nature, but it's the, the, the sublime is the feeling we get when we can institute our own subjective power uh, over nature. And it creates a sort of a, a, a marking point from which we can begin to, uh, to think and to reason that forms the, the, the dimensions of subjectivity. But for Jameson, writing about postmodernism in the early 1980s, he describes what he calls the hysterical sublime as the kind of the fear and fascination 
uh, and paranoia that we have at the face of the growth of new technology, new media arising out of late capitalism. So you can think, for instance, a very popular series like the Black Mirror uh, series or um, I, I love cyberpunk, so Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, uh, movies like Ex Machina, even going back to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, where there's the, the growth of technology out of human culture, human civilization, that becomes the object of fear and paranoia and fascination for us. So his, his idea of hysterical sublime, rather than the fear and uh, fascination with nature, is the fear and fascination with new media and new technology. Now, he does a good job of showing how the fear of fas and fascination with technology is really a fear and fascination with uh, the, the crises of late capitalism. So what I'm what I'm kind of trying to do is rethink, especially in the psychoanalytic sense, why dis, why the description as hysterical sublime? Why the hysterical, right? What is the hysterical dimension of this? And I'm even thinking about it through, as Zizek points out, Zizek's first French book um, was based on that line from Lacan that Hegel, le plus sublime des hystériques, Hegel is the most sublime of hysterics. So I'm trying to theorize this idea of hysterical sublime, but I'm also theorizing it in very much in the specific context of contemporary, what we call today, um, the, the Anthropocene. This idea, this sense that the climate crisis is a strictly specifically anthropogenic problem, uh, as well as the, again, still the problems, the fears that we have of new media, new technology, the black mirrors, like the cell phones and devices that we take around with us. These are all um, problems that are displaced onto the figure of the human or technology as a product of human culture and human civilization. Um, but I'm arguing that the hysterical sublime is a way that we can understand that our fears about the contradictions of capitalism are displaced onto the figure of the human. So that through the idea of the hysterical sublime, what I'm trying to revive, and it's very controversial, I think, in critical theory, I'm trying to revive a conception of a dialectical and a universalist humanism. And humanism has a, you know, a, a historically bad reputation for a number of reasons, being associated with Eurocentrism, colonialism, industrialism, which I think are actually not problems of humanism as such. I think that these are problems of colonialism, political domination that is particular. But as, and I draw on somebody like Edward Said here, who says that we can enact a critique of humanism in the name of humanism, that if we think about humanism as a, a concept that talks about universality, equality, freedom, respect, responsibility, I think that these are all the, the qualities that we have to revive if we're going to challenge the problems created by not just a global capitalist economy, but a global capitalist ecology. I think that the problem is not the human as such, but it's the way in which capitalism um, enact certain types of action and ethics in order to preserve itself. If we're going to think about any kind of emancipatory project today, I think we have to think about it in terms of a universal humanism. So the way that, and I said Anthropocene, but post-humanism, new materialism, these are all things that I touch on a little bit in my social media book, but now I'm trying to really take on what are the ideological problems of talking about our problems in terms of, in terms of an Anthropocene or in terms of a post-humanism. I think we really need to revive a universalist humanism if we're going to get past any of the um, 
the problems that, yeah, rightly identified by posthumanism, but displaced onto, I think, uh, a, a straw figure, um, um, which I also, at the same time, by talking down the human, I think prevents any kind of um, ethical response that puts uh, hum uh, universal humanism front and center. Okay, I said quite a bit there. No, that's great. And it got me thinking, like, okay, growing up in the United States, you constantly have this feeling, I constantly have this feeling, it, the capitalist structure makes you feel like there's something wrong with you, like you could be doing more, like you're not doing the right thing, you know, it, it makes you feel like the problem is inherent with you that you're not what XYZ or whatever thing you're supposed to achieve, um, but it, it's kind of reminding me of that and what you're talking about, like we're saying like, acting as if this is a human issue, that there's something inherently wrong with humans or humanity when it's really this like capitalist structure that we're all living within that we've like identified with, that's the issue. And we need to return to a more like uh, human, like those ethics that you described instead of this like business is business kind of capitalist attitude. Yeah, and even with a lot of the, I mean, the post-humanist literature, and I should say that when I when I say post-humanism, I'm really talking about a wide range of theories that are often in conflict with each other. I'm not talking, not necessarily a, a mo they're not monolithical. There's not just one voice, but there's actually many different um, competing perspectives here. But what they share is, uh, I borrow this from the from the new materialist thinker Jane Bennett. She talks about how. Um, Posthumanism as a resistance to anthropocentrism. I think that the that the whole project, what I call posthumanism, is this entire project of trying to resist anthropocentrism. Now, I think that if we're talking at an ethical level about a resistance to anthropocentrism, the the entire project of posthumanism, in my opinion, shoots itself in the foot in a way because there's always this attempt to 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 remove, to reduce as much as possible the 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 subjectivity or the agency of the human, or in other guises um, such as as uh, uh, the work of somebody like Rosie Bredotti, who talks about um, um, decentering the human subject um, in, a, in a form of a, of a, of a, a philosophical monism that, and you know, she relies on um, philosophers like Spinoza. There's a Deleuzian influence in the work of Bredotti that we can't think about a kind of a, a vertical hierarchy uh, or binary of human and non-human that we are all sort of connected uh, to each other in a, in a kind of a flat ontology. You see the same thing in people like Bruno Latour's actor network theory, where um, my agency is enacted by my interaction with say the laptop computer that we interact with each other and together we, we, we create, you know, situations. Um, or even the object-oriented ontology of somebody like, uh, like Graham Harmon or Levi Bryant, who rather than thinking uh, that we are all subjects, that, that there's nothing but objects, objects of different types um, in the world. Or uh, even Stephen Shaviro, who um, through uh, what we call panpsychism, that we don't think of mind as something exclusively human, that all things have mind. We have to imagine that all things have mind. Now, the problem that I have with all of these various different strategies of resisting anthropocentrism is that I think what they end up doing is nevertheless anthropomorphizing 
the non-human. Mm. I think that the that human qualities are being assigned to the non-human. And via this extension, this anthropomorphic extension of human qualities onto the non-human, I think that there's still an underlying inherent anthropocentrism. But it's a kind of, by displacing the agency or the subjectivity of actual humans, I think that it's in some ways trying to reduce what we do to non-act. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a call for non-action or dissociation or separation, not in the Lacanian sense, but to just to do less, right? To have less action. Now, for, forgive me with all due respect to, I think the, the there's a lot of really good work, I think, coming out of post-humanism in the sense that it's encouraging us to think the non-human, to respect the non-human in a way that we hadn't um, before. But I think that the ethical dimension of post-humanism is still, in my opinion, a reflection of a kind of a bourgeois consciousness or at least a capitalist consciousness. And I think that in some ways it's actually um, the form of reification specific to the market, right? The market ideology that I think is actually in some ways enacted here. So for Graham Harmon, for instance, an object-oriented ontology or Levi Bryant, to think of us all as different objects, different types of objects interacting with each other in different ways. I mean, isn't, is this not precisely what we're encouraged to think of in, in the market relationship? So we buy and sell commodities. As wage laborers, we are all commodity, commodified, you know, as well. I think that there's a, there's a primordial object-oriented ontology precisely within the market, right? That the market is the, you know, is post-humanism avant la lettre, right? So, but I find interesting if I, I want to historicize this as well, because I think that it's specifically within the context of contemporary neoliberal capitalism in neoliberalism, where so much of the rhetoric and the discourse of neoliberalism is that we are not workers, people are not workers, we are all individual businesses of one, we are all entrepreneurs of the self, and we become entrepreneurs when we, we, we see that in order to procure higher forms of income, we have to invest in the self, so which is acts of consumption, you buy the right clothing, you brought, you know, you, you buy the right cosmetics, you buy the, you know, the right education, which are all seen as acts of investment into your human capital, we are increasingly uh, encouraged to self objectify, to self-commodify. Now, it's interesting to me that it's this moment when the bourgeois middle classes are reaching this, you know, height of self-objectification that all of a sudden we start to gain an interest and concern with all the other objects out there. I mean, don't forget that we've had centuries of colonialism and slavery where human beings, the you know, non-European, you know, in the colonial context have been objectified, commodified, you know, as uh, means of production, not as human beings. But it's only at this specific moment where the white middle classes or the, you know, middle class more generally are seeing their own self-objectification, self-commodification, that lo and behold, this is the moment when objects gain self-awareness and consciousness. So there's, I I don't want to go, there is a kind of a hypocritical dimension to it that I think is at this moment, we're trying to get rid of hum, uh, uh, humanism, uh, human subjectivity. No, I think that this is the moment when we actually have to be much more universal in thinking about humanism as this as this goal of trying to um, produce real forms of responsibility, um, freedom, uh, respect, and so on. So this is where I, I, I'm kind of taking this.
Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's a really interesting insight that it was right at that moment when these things started becoming, uh, being brought to the forefront. I just finished reading Tom McGowan's book on universality and identity politics. And I feel like he's thinking in a similar way. He didn't, he didn't say that exactly, but he's thinking in a similar way to go back to more of these universal um, kind of qualities. Yeah, I mean, and Todd is uh, a big influence on a lot of my work, especially his book on uh, Hegel um, and emancipation, I think is a very, it's a valuable resetting of how we think about, and then of course, you know, the subsequent book, the um, uh, universality and identity politics. I think that what Todd's work, his return to Hegel is really helping to show the emancipatory dimensions of, of Hegel, especially um, not just in terms of thinking in terms of universality, but also in thinking the difference between an understanding and reasoning. So in Hegel, the Verstand and the Vernunft, right? So you have the difference between understanding a problem and then reasoning a problem. And I think that um, so much critical theory and scholarship today limits itself to the mere understanding. And the, and I, I, again, I'm being reductive for the sake of brevity, and I don't want to pigeonhole everybody, but I think that we have to, we should encourage ourselves to keep going further in that dimensioning, dimension of reasoning. I think that's something that both the, the, the standard Hegelian Marxist um, project is engaged in, as well as psychoanalysis, because I think that what psychoanalysis is really trying to do is reason the form of the symptom. I think that the, the thinking, right, is really what is the emancipatory dimension, not just mere action, not just mere you know, material transformation. I think Zizek actually says this quite well. And he says, now again, I mean, there are points where I'll disagree somewhat with him when we look at Marx's um, thesis on Feuerbach, right? So the very famous 11th thesis, uh, the philosophers have only thought about the world in many different ways, and the point is to change it. And Zizek says, no, there's too much action, too much change taking place. We have to stop and really think through the, the problems uh, that, that we're facing today. And I think that that's, um, and, and again, I think about that in terms of a return to humanism and human subjectivity. That's the dimension of reasoning that I think is central to human subjectivity. Now, I, I mean, now, just, just to say quickly, I think that that's only possible if we, if we do it through the framework of universality. And there's an important distinction to make in Hegel between you know, the abstract universal and the concrete universal. So that I think that most of the critique of universalism today thinks about it in terms of an abstract universality. So that often, quite often what we get is rhetoric that proclaims itself to be universal when actually it's serving merely um, particular interests. So it's not universal, it's the interests of white people, or it's not truly universal, it's the interest of capitalists, right? I think that's typically what we hear when we think of universal. But I think, you know, if we're talking about something like a, prob a problem like racism, I mean, racism to me is precisely antithetical to universality. I don't, I think that by definition, racism is exclusion that prevents 
actual universality and every critique of universality from the left, let's say, I think is still operating with an abstract conception of universality to say that, no, it's not universal because it's not universal enough. I have this abstract understanding of what universal inclusion should look like. But the level of the concrete, when we see actual instances of uh, real exclusion, it's that point of exclusion that in a way stands in for universality as such. It stands in for the very betrayal of universality. So for instance, Black Lives Matter for me is a universal statement. It's a universal statement because it's an expression of the betrayal of real universality. So I think that that's something that you know universal helps us to think and reason um, in that way. Now I'm going to go back for a second and take back what I said, the positive thing I said about Slavoj um, and the reversal, uh, I should say, so of Zizek, uh, of the reversal of um, Marxist thesis 11, because I think that part of the problem of posthumanism is it is precisely caught in this problem of just abstract thinking, right? Abstractly thinking only the mere contemplation of the reduction of the human subject. I think that um, the the that the limit of uh, posthumanism is this mere contemplative materialism. When in fact, you know, the the point is to change the conditions that we're being that we're facing. But for me, it's a collective human subject that is only is the only one that's capable of doing it. Yeah, exactly. I think. Um making a universal that's actually universal and not just talking about a particular group of people. And I'm always thinking of like how things do come about and can be put into action in kind of the real world, I guess, because of my cl clinical work. But also, I really don't like this divide that people uh, perpetuate of like, oh, the clinical says this and the theoretical says this, because they both work together and inform each other and kind of yeah work together in that way. So they're both important and it's not they're not separate. <laughs> it's like thinking mind and body are separate. They're not separate. It's a, it's a unit. So maybe if you don't mind, I, can I can I can I ask you a question? Can I turn something back? Yeah. So the kinds of things that I'm talking about here with posthumanism, this idea of anthropocentrism, the the crisis of universality. I mean, is this something that a, a clinical perspective on psychoanalysis? What would I mean? What were, what would be some of the ways to think these types of problems? Do you know what I mean? I mean. That's a good question because I guess because of the clinical work, when you're clinical work, it's really individual, right? And but of course the collective is informing the individual. And what I try to really get away from, I I think a lot about pathologization and normalization and trying to get away from the idea, like I said before, that there's something wrong with these individuals or something wrong with us. And rather it's more these structures that we're living in that are making us sick. Um, so I guess I think about it a lot that way. And and I think that. Um, you know, of course, the climate crisis is a huge anxiety for most people right now. <laughs> um, and yet, it's, how does it manifesting? It's manifesting in different people's lives in different ways. And it's not talked about that much in the clinic or in general, because I don't know, it's such a huge issue. I guess it's so overwhelming and people tend to just repress things that overwhelm us, I guess. Um, and I think when you were in the study group, when we were talking about a chapter from your book, I felt like at some point we got to where it was like, we're either like active and it's inefficient, <laughs> or we're just like passive and we don't do anything. But like, either way, it kind of felt like it was like the same ending. Like, what is it, what is it that we can really do? And I think about that a lot as well. 
Yeah, I think that's actually that's a that's a wonderful point. I think that that's you know it, you know I think my main immediately the person I think of is somebody like Mark Fisher, who I think did a lot of trying to bridge you know the the contradictions of the social and the political with the kinds of the the pathologies that impact the individual. And I think, you know, look at the world around us today. And I, you know, I think about friends and colleagues and family and students that, you know, it looks like we're in such a no-win situation, right? With climate change, with automation, the economy is so fucked. I mean, um, you know, it's so hard not to feel anxious, not to feel depressed, not to feel like there's, you know, to, to be without hope. And I think that that's a really important you know, political and theoretical problem that critique of ideology has to really address in the sense that, you know, going back to the, the problem with Frankfurt School theory, um, it's not just this problem of people are duped um, um, and there's false consciousness that's preventing any kind of real action. I think that the problem today is that, or even, you know, we talk all the time these days about misinformation. And I don't think that that's actually, in my opinion, I wouldn't say that's really the major problem. I think that the major problem is that we are, you know, realist, we're enlightened, we're, you know, knowledgeable, we have so much information, we've never had more information, um, you know, readily available to us, it's overwhelming, I mean, it becomes this problem of how do you choose, you know, how do you know who is right? You know, who do you believe? Who do you follow? And I think that the, the difficulty here is working, you know, what are the what are the frameworks or what are the structures? And this kind of goes back to this idea of thinking of a new structuralism. And I think even maybe, you know, you're the expert here, so you can tell me where I'm wrong. But even in a clinical sense, I mean, a lot of what I think about is how it's not just a matter of trying to highlight and point out the flaws and contradictions that exist today, the reasons why we're experiencing these you know, vast crises, but what are the, what framework, what structure could we give to ourselves, right? So there is this, you know, there's a social, political, cult, you know, structures that are imposed, but what structure could we build? What structure, what framework could we create that would give us the sense of how to, to what goal to build towards? This is really where I, you know, I am critical of somebody like Althusser who famously said, that history is a process without subject or goal. I think that that's wrong. I think that that's not the right way to think about the, even especially emancipatory politics. I think that in order for emancipation to take place, even I think, you know, in you know, again, I'm not the expert here, but, you know, in a clinical sense of trying to think about, you know, working towards the cure, that it's the, you know, the analyzant who has to, who's the subject who has to do the work and to reach, you know, a goal. Goals can be changed, you know, they can, they can change, right? Every new situation, every new condition, every new moment, creates a new a new goal right I mean it's a you know the the goalpost is constantly moving we have to be working towards that in order to create any kind of change and transformation so for me the main the main way to think about that socially politically culturally is to think about what is the correct framework what is the correct structure that we have to give to ourselves in order to think about our uh, our, our subjectivity to think about our our, our agency? Um, in the in these conditions. So in the in the, if we want to you know go into the Lacanian uh, jargon here even, and I'm drawing you know very influential on my thinking about this is somebody like Anna Kornblue, who is the uh, book The Order of Forms. I think is actually um, um, very 
useful in thinking about the emancipatory dimensions of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And she talks about even in the, in the analyst discourse, it's the production of the new signifier, that it's the production of the new signifier that institutes the production, the construction of new structures, new frameworks, new forms that we have to give to ourselves as the first act, right? Changing the perspective of way we see things as the first act and moving towards emancipation. So this again is what I'm doing when I'm critiquing post-humanism and Anthropocene theory, is I think that this is the wrong framework. I think this is the wrong structure, the wrong narrative. I think that it's a narrative that is purely ideological insofar as it only provides a space for mere contemplation as opposed to action. It undermines action right from the get-go. And insofar as it undermines action from the get-go, I think it's doing nothing but serving the dominant capitalist ideology. That's a really good point. And I just personally have to believe in agency. <laughs> there has to be some agency. We have to find a way to have agency. Um, I just have to believe that. And I feel like um, this is where like the hysteria comes in that you were saying before. Like, what, what is this with the hysteria? But the, you know, that's the, what the hysteric does is kind of show the flaws in the structure and find like new ways to kind of burst out and bust, burst it open um, and, and create something new, invent something new. And that might then turn into its own thing, but that it continues to happen. There can, continues to be ruptures and these eruptions. And I feel like the, well, I feel like a thing with psychoanalysis and therapy in general is that people, you know, often feel out of control, they're not in control of themselves, but they're thinking, they're thinking just with their ego and what their conscious mind wants them to be doing. And the process is to learn that, like, that's not all of you. That's just a little sliver. And you have to learn to look at these other things that may not be so um, easily to define based on our dominant way of thinking um, about psychology. But like once you learn to kind of see how you're working in these other ways and see your kind of hysteria at work and how you might not be just a procrastinator, maybe maybe you don't want to do those things that you're procrastinating. You know, maybe you're speaking to yourself in other ways that aren't so obvious. And then you can learn um, how to kind of work that and like uh, use your agency in a way that might not be obvious, but is still useful, still works. Yeah. No, that's perfect. I totally agree with you. I think that that's actually a really, really great way of thinking about it and seeing it. And it really gets at the, you know, the reason why I'm trying to think about this through this idea of the hysterical sublime or the hysterics sublime. And I think that one thing that um, Freud and Lacan, Lacan especially in the, the discourse of the hysteric, really goes to show that it's precisely because of the hysteric, because of the hysterical questioning, what do you want from me, the kevoi, right? The what do you want from me? Who am I to you? This, this hysterical questioning is the very reason for the production of the knowledge that is formed as the psychoanalytic discourse, as the analyst discourse, right? That the hysteric is really the one, the questioning of the hysteric is the one who really sets things off, who really gets things going, right? Um, um, but it's also, I mean, uh, and I get this from, from Zizek too, in a number of ways, and um, Laden Dolar. And again, the, you know, the way that Dolar puts it, the distinction, the difference between the, uh, uh, for, for Althusser, he says, subject is a category of ideology, whereas for Lacan, subject is where ideology fails that the, the hysteric is the subject position of, you know, getting the ideological interpolation, but 
not fully being interpolated, not really identifying with the call of the ideological interpolation. And it's the position of the hysteric who first is starting to break free of the ideology, who's really starting to question it and to think through it. And I think that if we, in the strictly Lacanian sense, we talk about the logics of sexuation, again, for Lacan, uh, the, it's the, the feminine subject who is the, the typical subject, right? And if we think about in the logics of sexuation, grafting it onto the difference between the Verstand and the Vernunft in Hegel, the understanding and the thinking. In some ways, it's the masculine subject who is at the mere limit of understanding, identifying with the ideology, whereas it's the feminine subject, the hysteric, you know, in the, you know, I know like the, the you know, the more chauvinistic, older historical, you know, idea of it, right? But it's really the feminine subject who is doing the work of reasoning, doing the work of thinking, that it's only in that process of beginning by questioning and thinking right, thinking and then reasoning that we're capable of understanding, really understanding, not in the ideological sense, but, but figuring out that next step, that turning of the screw to become the, you know, the, to, to, to enter that dimension where we can give ourselves the new structure, right, where we can give ourselves a new framework. So that's why for me, it's the, the hysteric, but also the feminine subject in the Lacanian sense of the one who is doing the thinking, the one who is doing the reasoning, the one who is broken free of ideology and then can reason the presence of the contradiction. It's this the position of the humanist subject that I'm trying to theorize here, that's capable of creating a framework for a change in action. Right. But I'm totally with you on this. You know, I think that if we if we cannot think of our agency at an individual as well as at a collective, I don't think that there can be any kind of collective action until individuals start to free themselves from the, you know, the, the, the pathologies that we're talking about, right? If you already believe ahead of time that things are hopeless, then you're shit out of luck, then there's nothing you can do to, you know, you're stuck in that situation. This is why I have so much trouble with a lot of the, the various different types of pessimisms, um, cultural pessimisms that persist today. I think that it's just, um, it, it's, you know, um, it, it, it's, it, it it's just convincing ourselves more and more and more that we should remain, remain in our depressive state, right? And I, I think that it, from the get-go, undermines any kind of emancipatory project. So I think that this is kind of where we're at. Yeah, exactly. And by believing that, that, that we have no agency, then we're just letting the powers that be win this. <laughs> You know, and I the think structures a, that be. <laughs> but I mean, it's also just going back to the some of the post-humanism stuff. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of it wants to argue for agency as something that is not exclusive to humanity, that there is agency in the non-human, that things are constantly in motion um, outside of the human. And this is where I think that a theory of subjectivity is different from the extension of agency. I can think on the one hand, sure, we can speak of the agency of the non-human. I'm not going to deny that. But I think, and there's you know, different ways that the non-human interacts with our own human agency, that you know, our, our, our natural settings, our ecology, right, our technology, these are all things that do have an impact on our own human agency. But I think there's a difference between that and thinking about subjectivity, for which for me, is, I mean, there's two things. I mean, there's on the one hand, there's the role of human subjectivity in, um, in our, our, the way that we reason, Right? Not to say that reasoning is exclusive to humanity, but the way that we reason, 
I think is something that's significant, that's, that sets us apart from the non-human, but also the dimension of the unconscious. I think that there's a lot of, um, in the post-humanist um, literature, talking about you know, non-human consciousness, but I think that what sets human subjectivity apart is the presence of the unconscious, right? That um, one of my favorite go-to examples here is something like Commander Data on Star Trek The Next Generation. And the whole, you know, throughout the whole series, you know, he wants to become more human. He's acting human, he's acting human. He has consciousness, he has emotions, he has dreams, but there's never any question asking. I mean, they do kind of, there's one episode where he's, uh, he's having dreams or nightmares and he goes to talk to Freud, uh, like a hologram of uh, Freud and he sits on the couch, but they don't really ever <laughs> broach the question of, you know, whether or not does he desire, does he have an unconscious? What is the, you know, what does that add to the dimensions of subjectivity? I think that this is a very important area where psychoanalysis lends itself to rethinking the concept of humanism, which I admit is difficult, especially since uh, someone like Lacan in particular was so adamantly anti-humanist, right? I mean, I, 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 you know, for the sake of brevity, I'll just say that I chalk that up to, you know, being a, a, the context of his times, anti-humanism in French theory and in, in, in um, the, the, the structuralist and post-structuralist language of the time, um, even in some ways early Lacan being influenced by Heidegger, who is very famously uh, anti-humanist. I think that it all plays a role in the anti-humanism of Lacan. But I don't, but I, I, but I want to change this. I think that psychoanalysis, especially through our understanding of the unconscious, or Zizek talks about, Zizek is also very famously anti-humanist and speaks of an inhuman, the inhuman core of the human subject in the form of death drive, for instance. But I think that there's a difference between thinking about the, the inhuman or the, the drive component, uh, the unconscious component of human subjectivity. I think that there's a difference between that at the individual level and thinking about humanism in the form of the social link, the social relation between the analyzed and the analyst. Right, or the forms of communication and intersubjectivity that really help us to center our consciousness. I think that the whole point is to try to, in some ways, uh, even if it's if it's momentary and fleeting, to gain some sense of you know you reach that point of subjective uh, destitution. But then, what act do you perform that changes the framework that institutes the new signifier that changes the whole framework from which we're perceiving things? I think that this is actually something that psychoanalysis really does contribute to a new thinking of universal and dialectical humanism. I like that. Is there anything else that you wanted to be sure to get to before we wrap up? Because we have eight minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting for you to say that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> well, I do like to cut it. I usually take out any like goodbye chit chat and just leave it at an end point, like the one you just made, just like boom, so that people are left kind of thinking about that instead of hearing us like say our goodbyes. So in that way, I end it like I mean, a session a bit too. <laughs> I mean, the the I mean, you know, we haven't talked about as much about the the social media book today. I mean, uh, go read it. Tell me, you know, everything I got <laughs> wrong to your audience, and that'll you know give me my own new set of pathologies. So you can just um, come back. <laughs> absolutely, I will. I will do that. I'd be glad to. I'd be very happy to. Um, um, yeah, I I think the 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 message that I want to get across is. Don't give up. Don't give up on human subject. Don't give up on humanity. Um, if uh, if we're going to 
do anything. I think in some ways uh, it's not about losing hope, but I think that we have to, I guess, I mean, and again, I'm influenced by Zizek here and others. Um, we have to assume that the crisis has already happened. I think that it's not, we shouldn't just hope that something will miraculously, uh, we're not waiting for a Messiah. I think that we actually have to begin by assuming that the crisis has already happened. And now what do we do to um, mitigate the crisis itself? And the only people that can do it is us. And that's the message that I wanna get across. Yeah, and in that way, I can't help but looking at this as like a collective symptom for humanity because that's what happens. Like there's like hints and hints and hints and your symptoms pop up. But if you keep going at things the same way and you don't change kind of the way you're acting, uh, then it just gets louder and more difficult until finally you like hit a wall and we've hit that wall. <laughs> Yeah. We don't need a bigger wall to hit. Let's just say we've hit the wall. And so like, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the right way. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So should we stop there? Sure. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been great getting a chance to talk about a lot of these ideas. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Yeah, as I said, you can come on anytime. You're always welcome. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Bye, Matt. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Matthew Flissfader. Be sure to check out his new book, Algorithmic Desire, toward a new structuralist theory of social media. Follow him on Twitter at Matt Flissfader and check out his website, MatthewFlissfader.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-F-L-I-S-F-E-D-E-R.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. And now the song, Seems Like an Eternity, from the album Conceive Ourselves, a collaboration I did 
with Pete Murphy, available at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. If you want to usually associate with there, feels good to place you and thrust in someone else's mirroring of yourself. Catch can with for what seems like an eternity. Seems like an eternity. Seems like an eternity. 